out of the Psalms and then pray for the peace of Israel and so reading from Psalm 122 verse 3 through 6 Jerusalem is built as a city that is compacted together where the tribes go up the tribes of the Lord to the testimony of Israel to give thanks to his name of the Lord for the thrones are set there for judgment the thrones of the house of David pray for the peace of Jerusalem may they prosper who love you peace be within your walls prosperity within your palaces and from Psalm 125 those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion which cannot be moved but abides forever as the mountains surround Jerusalem so the Lord surrounds his people from this time forth and forevermore for the scepter of wickedness shall not rest on the land allotted to righteousness lest the righteous reach out their hands to iniquity do good O Lord, to those who are good, and to those who are upright in their hearts. As for such as turn aside to their crooked ways, the Lord shall lead them away with the workers of iniquity. Peace be upon Israel. So let's just join our hearts together this morning, and if Brother Robert Box, if you will just lead us in a prayer for not only Israel, but for the people of Gaza and the people that are caught up in the, this, this hate, this circle of violence, that, that God would somehow reach out and, and save those that, that are calling upon his name. So, and then if uh, Brother Rick, if you'll pray after Robert, and then I'll, I'll close this in prayer.
Father, I just agree with my brothers in prayer, God, that you would draw many Gentiles to the Savior. God, that as Israel sees the gospel being proclaimed and hears it, that God, that they would turn to their Messiah, that they would confess now Jesus as Lord, as the sovereign King. And Father, God, that you would guide the armies of Israel, Lord, that they would have wisdom, that there would be uh, a quick resolution, Lord, as, as my brother Rick prayed, Lord, we do know that, that we're told that Israel in the last days will be a heavy stone and all the, the nations will be gathered against her. And so, God, I pray for your church, for those that are believers, that, God, that we would be ready, that we'd be found working and testifying of your grace, Lord. God, that we would use these days that we're living in as opportunities to share the peace of Jesus Christ, the love of God for all people. Father, we just pray Maranatha. Lord Jesus, come quickly. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, you go ahead and be seated. You've been standing a while. Um, I'm going to read our passage this morning and just turn in your Bibles with me and read along um, as we read from 2 Timothy. So I'm going to be kind of doing a, a series of just spiritual preparedness. Um, I think as never before, our generation, we need to be spiritually prepared. And so I'm going to be doing expository teaching, but it's going to be more topical. And so it's a topic this morning, but it's verse by verse from 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. Paul encouraging Timothy to be strong. And it's time for every one of us really to take our stand as followers of Jesus. We need to stand up and be counted as his church, his bride, his, his people. 2 Timothy 2, 1 through 7. Thou, therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And the things which you have heard from me among many witnesses, commit these to faithful men, faithful people, who will be able to teach others also. You, therefore, must endure hardship as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. No one engages in warfare, entangles himself in the affairs of this life, in order that he may please him who has chosen him to be a soldier. Also, if anyone competes in athletics, 
He is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. The hardworking farmer must be first to partake of the crops. Consider what I say, and may the Lord give you understanding in all things. Verse 7, those illustrations are not explained, are they? We're simply commanded here to consider them, to think on them. Let the Holy Spirit let them marinate in our hearts. What do those illustrations mean? What is the application of those illustrations? And may the Lord grant you understanding, wisdom, knowledge in all things. That's our prayer this morning, that God, as we read this, that God, that you would grant us understanding. Um, I think more than ever before, believers need to stand up and to be counted. We're living in an era of political correctness, of this woke culture that really is exalting evil as something noble or brave. There's spiritual apathy and cowardice among many of our Bible-believing churches. Yet I think today, more than ever, people are hungering and looking for clarity and looking for answers because of what's happening in the Middle East, particular because of what is happening globally with one world governments and no currency and the, the, the decay of, of the Judeo-Christian ethic of our country. The division lines are being clearly drawn and, and I think we need to speak with clarity. We need to speak with boldness like never before. A recent Barna research poll reported that nearly 40% of people who claim to follow Christ say that it is not their responsibility to tell others about Jesus. Of the remaining 60% who do believe that they're supposed to share their faith, only 15 to 20% of that small group actually share their faith. Over 80% have never told anybody about Jesus. The number one pe reason people don't share their faith is fear. And I, I understand that. And Timothy understood that. Timothy was a, a man that was, was shy. He was, he was timid when... Paul sent him to Corinth. He said, I don't want him to be there in fear. So this passage, I think we can relate to as Paul is encouraging Timothy to be strong, to take what has been given to you and to entrust it to others and to endure all the hardships of what it means to follow Christ. So this passage, I think, can, can help us dismiss some of those fears of sharing our faith. Almost all Christians have a misunderstanding about what effective evangelism is. We think of a, effective evangelism as somebody trusting Christ as a result of me sharing my faith. Are you sharing your faith with them? 
But that's not necessarily effective evangelism. What Christ is calling us to do is to be faithful. It is the Holy Spirit. It is the gospel that regenerates. That is not our responsibility. We can't do that. Only the Lord can do that. But what we are responsible for, that is successful evangelism. And that is telling the simple truth that Jesus died for our sins according to the scriptures. That he was buried and that he rose again according to the scripture. For Paul said, for this is the gospel that saves you. And if we have done that, we have engaged in successful evangelism. Because to some people, we are going to be a savor or a, an aroma of death to those who reject the gospel. But to those who receive the gospel, we are going to be an aroma or a savor of life. And so regardless, God has used you. Because the Bible says that this word that we share will not return void. So God's word will either go out for judgment on those who reject Jesus, or it will go out to those who who are looking for the Savior and longing for truth to open their blind eyes and to deliver them out of darkness and to translate them into the kingdom of our dear Son. So that is successful evangelism. One of the most persuasive sermons in the book of Acts was Paul at the Oropagus, or on Mars Hill, where he spoke to the Athenians, and he begins with creation, and then he moves them to the Messiah who died, and many begin to mock at that point. In this wonderful sermon, it says that many people made fun of him. Some people said, well, we want to hear some more, and some believed, and then it just lists two or three names. But don't tell me Paul was not successful there at Mars Hill. We need to come to grips with our anxiety. We need to come to grips with our fear. And understand that we don't need to fear man. When Jesus sent out the twelve, he says, fear God alone. So this letter written at the close of the Apostle Paul's life, knowing that he was going to pass off the scene, wanted to leave with Timothy this charge, this this letter of exhortation to Timothy to be bold, to be courageous, and don't shrink back from all the hardships of being an evangelist for Christ. Well, who was Timothy? I don't want to assume that all of us here know who Timothy was, so let me just give you a little information about Timothy. Well, Timothy came from a long lineage of spiritual heritage. His grandmother had faith in Jesus. She believed in the Messiah. His mother believed in the Messiah. And Paul says, I am also convinced, Timothy, that this sincere or this unfeigned faith is in you also, just as it was your grandmother and just as it is in your mom, and I'm persuaded it's also in you. Now, the word unfeigned literally is the Greek word unhypocritos. And it doesn't mean that some people have sincere faith and genuine faith that saves, 
and others have insincere and ingenuous faith that doesn't save. That's not Paul's point here. The word unhypocritical means unmasked. It means without a charade. It means somebody who was consistent. So we could contrast that in a couple of illustrations that came to my mind this week was Mark, who was also a believer, but when he got on the mission field, he defected after he saw the opposition and went back home. But we know that Mark was a regenerated man. We know that he was saved because at the end of this letter, he says, bring John Mark to me because he is profitable to the ministry. We know that Peter sometimes exercised inconsistent faith or hypocritical faith because before people came from James, the pastor of the Jerusalem church, he used to eat with Gentiles. But when they arrived, he dissembled, the old King James says. In other words, he played the hypocrite. He wasn't genuine and sincere, but he was a saved man. He was born again. So what he's saying about Timothy Timothy, you have lived a consistent life with me, and like a son in the gospel ministry, and me as your father, I have no one who is like-minded like Timothy and I. And so that's what he's getting at here. And so this is who Timothy was. Timothy knew the Bible as a child. We're told in 2 Timothy 2.15 that from childhood you have known the Holy Scriptures which are able to make you wise into salvation. And who were they pointing to? They were pointing to faith in Jesus Christ. So Paul had met Timothy on his second missionary journey right after the Jerusalem Council in Acts chapter 15. Acts chapter 16, he comes to the cities of Lystra and Derbe, and he meets this young disciple. So he is a learner. He is one who is teachable, and he's growing in his faith. He meets him, and he's called a disciple. And he was the son of a Jewish woman, but his father was a Greek. Now, among all those people in Lystra and Derbe, it says that Timothy was well reported of of the brethren. He had a good reputation. And Paul wanted to take him with him on his missionary journeys, and so he had him circumcised. That tells us a lot about a young man willing to undergo this Jewish rite. Now, that work had nothing to do with his salvation. It had everything to do with his heart attitude. That he knew that if he went with Paul, that Paul was going to take him into the synagogues. And having a mother who was a Jew and a father who was a Gentile... He wanted to say a strong message to those Jewish people that I am not converting as a pagan to following the Messiah. I am following the Messiah even as a devout Jew. And it opened up the door and it gave him credibility with his Jewish listeners. So this is the kind of man that Timothy was. And in spite of all of that, Timothy needed encouragement. And so if Timothy needed encouragement, how much more do you and I need to be encouraged to stand strong and to hold the fort for our Savior? Timothy was considered as Paul's trusted son in ministry. We find this written in Philippians 2.19. 
but I trust in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy shortly to you, that I also may have good comfort when I know your state. For I have no one like-minded who will sincerely or naturally care for your state, for all seek their own and not the things of Jesus Christ. But you know the proof of him, that as a son with the Father, he served me in the ministry of the gospel. When was this letter written? That's going to help us understand this context as well. This letter was written approximately in 64 AD. So Paul has known Timothy for approximately 15 years. It was right before Paul's execution. That's going to help us to understand the broader context of this entire letter. It was also written in a time when many people were shrinking back from the Apostle Paul. In fact, he says, at my first defense, nobody stood with me. And so that colors this letter, how uh, this, this letter is, was written, because it, it influences the way that Paul is talking to, th to Timothy. In fact, he, he writes to Timothy, and he says, in, in the letter to the Philippians, when he's in jail, in prison there, he's, he's holding out great hope that he's going to be released. But in 2 Timothy, the Lord has shown him that there is no hope and that his execution is right around the corner. He ends this letter in the last chapter saying this, I am now ready to be offered. Many translations say, I'm ready to be poured out as a drink offering. The Latin word is oblation. The idea is that a priest would, would end the sacrificial system and take the blood at the, as the last thing and pour all of it out. And Paul is saying, I am ready to empty everything out. It's, it's over. My departure is right at hand. The word departure was used for, for mooring ships to the dock. And he says, they've already taken these ropes. They've loosed them. And I am setting sail. I'm being poured out. I'm emptying everything. And I am departing from this earth, and I'm heading home to see my Savior. He says, my departure is at hand. And then he uses a tense three times, the perfect tense. I have fought a good fight. I have finished my course. I have kept the faith. And that tense has the idea that I started it, and I'm continuing it, and it's going to continue on even after my departure. And so, Timothy, you need to take a hold of the mantle. You need to rise up because I am leaving. And you need to take the things that I have committed to you and you need to start entrusting them to other people. It's time to stand up, Timothy. In, first, in 2 Timothy 1, 4 through 6, Paul brings things back to his remembrance and is reminding Timothy. So in verse 4, it says, I am greatly desiring to see you being Mindful. I remember, I remember the tearful departure that we had. I remember that. 
that you may be filled with joy when I call to remembrance the genuine faith that is in you, which dwelt also in your grandmother Lois and in your mother Eunice. And I am persuaded that's in you. Therefore, I remind you. See those remembrances three times in that text? That tells me that's something important for Timothy to think about. I, I remember your tears. I remember that you're a young pastor and you're put in a hard position. I remember how that leaving was difficult to you. But I also remember that faith that was unhypocritical, that was consistent throughout your life. I also want to remind you of the gifts that God has given you because I want to stir you up. Therefore, I remind you to stir up the gift. It's a compound word in the original language, and the idea is that are, that, that are coals that are still hot, but when you take those coals early in the morning, and you've just got out of your tent, and you start to stir those, you have to dig them up, and you, you find some of those red ones, and then you start to blow on them. And then you can put the kindling back on. And the flame starts burning again. And that's what Paul is doing in this letter. Because he knew Timothy was shy. He knew that he had a natural timidity to him. And so in verse 7, he reminds Timothy, For God has not given to us a spirit of fear, of cowardice, of timidity, that doesn't come from God. That comes from the natural man. And every one of us have to contend with the natural man. And so fear is a part of who we are as people. We don't like to be unpopular. We don't like to be put on the spot. We, we don't want to, to feel like I don't have an answer to your difficult question. And so Paul reminds Timothy, and he reminds all of us today that God is not the author of fear. The spirit that God plants in you and I is a spirit of power. Acts 1.8, and you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, in Judea, and all Samaria, and unto the uttermost part of the earth. That is the spirit that you and I have that dwells in our heart. And so he's reminding him, Timothy, this is the spirit that God has given you. And he's also given you a spirit of love. Love is part of the fruit of the spirit. And love does not seek its own. Love does not seek its own comfort. Love is a sacrificial action toward others. And that is the spirit that God has given you and I. And then he's given us a spirit of a confident mind that God is with us, that God will give us an answer, that the Holy Spirit will teach us. It's a spirit of self-control. So this is how this letter begins. And then he moves instantly in don't be ashamed. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of the Lord, Timothy. I want to remind you of what faith you have. I want to remind you of the faith that was in your family. I want to remind you of the gift that God has given you. I want to stir it up. I want that fervent, hot flame to be, be, be glowing in your life. So don't be ashamed. 
because God has not given you a spirit of fear. So don't be ashamed to talk about Jesus Christ, his death, burial, and his resurrection, that that is the only way to heaven, neither is salvation given in any other. For no other name under heaven is given among men, whereby we must be saved. So Timothy, don't be ashamed. North Valley Bible Church, believer this morning, do not be ashamed of the testimony, nor to be associated with those who are followers of Jesus, nor me, his, his prisoner, he says. And then Paul says... He's not ashamed. Look at verse 12, or verse 11 of chapter 1 of 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy 1.11, To which I was appointed a preacher and an apostle together to the Gentiles. For this reason I also suffer these things. So what was the reason that Paul was suffering? Because he was a preacher of the gospel. Because he was telling people about Jesus. There's going to be persecution that comes with telling people about Jesus. But he says, for this reason I suffer. Look at this. Nevertheless, I am not ashamed. Timothy, you don't be ashamed. I am not ashamed. And why is Paul not ashamed? Why is it that you and I don't have to shrink back? Why is it that we can be bold? Because with Timothy, we can say, I know whom I have believed. This morning I was talking to, to Robert, and this verse came to my mind. He just witnessed the homegoing of his mother, and he was sharing with a friend who's not a believer. And this friend was welling up with tears in his eyes because Robert believed that his mother was in the presence of Jesus. And he says, do you believe that? And Robert said, no, no, I don't believe it. He says, oh, good. No, he says, Robert said, no. I know. I know whom I have believed. And you and I can say the same thing. I know whom I have believed, and I am persuaded that my God is able to keep that which I've committed to him until that day. I remember I was in college reading that passage for the first time. I didn't read my Bible growing up, but I was in church every Sunday. And I thought, oh, this is great. This is where Paul got this from that hymn. That's <laughs> the other way around. But anyway, this is one of my favorite, favorite choruses. Um, but Timothy, don't be ashamed. I am not ashamed. I know who I believed. And there's sufferings that's coming along. And then he picks a third guy in this chapter, a guy named, and I'll probably massacre his name, Onesiphorus. But if you drop down to verse 15, this you know that all those in Asia have turned away from me. All those in Asia have turned away. Timothy, take courage, be strong. I, I know what's going on. I'm about ready to die, and nobody wants to associate with me except for Onesiphorus. Look at verse 16. May the Lord grant mercy to the household of Onesiphorus, for he often refreshed me, and he was not ashamed of my chain. But when, I, when he arrived in Rome, he sought me out very zealously, and he found me. Three times in chapter 1, we have this reiterated. Timothy, don't be ashamed. I'm not ashamed. Onesiphorus wasn't ashamed. 
In fact, all these things are against us. We're thrown in prison. Nobody wants to associate with Jesus because it was taboo under the Roman Empire. And if you mentioned the name of Jesus, you had a good chance of going to prison. And Paul was about to be headed for his faith in Jesus. And he says, be strong. Fan that flame. Get, it, get excited about who you are as a follower of Jesus. So with all of that in mind, that's the context of this letter. So we get to chapter 2, and it says, you therefore. Where the word therefore is bringing us back to everything he said about Timothy. And I don't want to just be overly redundant this morning, but again, because of your sincere faith, Timothy, therefore. Timothy, because I'm not ashamed, because I know whom I believe, therefore, Timothy, because of the example of Onesiphorus, Timothy, therefore, don't you be ashamed either. And then he calls him my son. Paul appeals on the basis of a close working relationship. Therefore, my son. And then he tells him where true strength is found. And this is where you and I need to camp this morning. This is what we need to get in our minds. The preposition in is found three times in this verse. The first one is a prefix to the word strong. The word strong, the verb strong, is dunamai, where we get the word dynamite. But the prefix before that word is epsilon nu in the original language, which means en dunamai, be empowered. And it's the passive voice. It's not something that we can do ourselves. It's something that has to come from within through the Spirit of God. And he's encouraging Timothy don't you try to strengthen yourself, but you be empowered, you be in-strengthened, and it's in the grace. That is the means for strength this morning. Strength comes for grace. Grace saves us also, doesn't it? But grace also gives us the power to live the Christian life. So when you are facing fear, ask God to give you the grace from the inside out, and that grace is found in the person of Jesus Christ. So the command is to be strong, be strong, and that's in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. That's the first imperative of this passage. The second imperative is found in verse 2. And the things which you have heard from me among many witnesses... That's a long phrase, but what is he supposed to do with those things that he's heard among many witnesses? He's supposed to commit. That word, to commit, has the idea of entrusting something to somebody else that is sacred. Something that you and I are to guard with everything we have. Timothy, I want you to take what I have given you. I want you to entrust it. It is something sacred. It is a treasure. It is the gospel. It is the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. That Christ came to save and to seek that which is lost. That by faith in Christ alone, you can be saved. We have this treasure 
of Christ in these clay jars in Jesus Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. In Jesus Christ, we are complete in Him. Everything we need is found in Jesus, and this is the sacred trust. And He says, I want you to take and commit it. If you look over with me at chapter 6 of 1 Timothy and verse 20. We see that word committed, and you can get the idea of this treasure. Oh, Timothy, exclamation point. Guard what was committed to your trust. This gospel message, Timothy, I want you to guard it. It is sacred. If we go to further on down this passage, In 2.14, it says, Remind them of these things. Charge them before the Lord, not to strive about words of profit to the ruin of the hearers. I don't know why I put that passage down. <laughs> it's got what I'm looking for. But anyway, um, I'm sorry. That's 2 Timothy 2.14. Maybe that's the reference that I was referring to. Let's quickly go over there. Nope, not either. I don't know what I was thinking. Never mind. But let's go over to First, First um, Timothy, uh, one eighteen, and we'll see this this sacred trust again. This charge I commit. That's the same word I commit to you, Timothy, my son, according to the prophecies made concerning you, that by them you may wage a good warfare. So, this is something that Paul wants Timothy to guard himself. But then he wants to take this special treasure of the gospel and commit it to faithful people, people who are trustworthy. And this is, this is God's plan. This is Jesus' method of discipleship and multiplication. God doesn't have any other agenda or any other plan to reach the world other than through you and I. Timothy, be strong. Timothy, take what I have given you, and you entrust it to people who are faithful. And then they can take that and replace it and do it in somebody else's life. It's a principle of multiplication. It is a simple method of church growth. If each one will win one and teach and disciple that one to win another, we can impact our society. And Paul is saying, Timothy, it is now time to stand up. And I think more than ever in America, it is time to stand up and to take courage. It's time to be strong. It's time to take what you and I know and commit it to other people and to entrust it with them. And then we have a third imperative. The third command is found in verse 3. You therefore must endure hardship. The very fact that we're going to take the gospel to the lost world is going to open us up to hardship. Jesus said, if they've hated me, 
they are going to hate you. We're not going to be popular. If you're going to take and commit this to other people, you must be ready to endure hardship, to go through persecution. Paul wrote to Timothy, and he says, but you have known my doctrine, fully known it. You've known my manner of life. You've also known my persecutions, my afflictions which came to me at Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, what persecutions I endured, but out of them all the Lord delivered me. And yes, all that live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. So his third command is, Timothy, endure it. Don't flake out. Don't be like the people that I talked about in verse 15 of chapter 1. He says, you know all those of Asia have turned away from me. Timothy, you need to be strong. Go over to chapter 4 with me of this letter. Verse 16. At my first defense, no one stood with me. Timothy, you have got to endure hardness. And how does he compare the endurance that we're supposed to do or to, to, to go through? We're to endure it as a good soldier. Colossus, it means noble. Now, Paul gives us three illustrations. So we've got three commands, don't we? The first command is that we are to be strong. Let's find ourselves where does strength come from. It comes from the inner being. It comes from the Spirit of God. God hasn't given us a spirit of fear. It comes through grace, and that grace is found in Christ. The next command, we're to understand that we have been given the most sacred trust that this world will ever know, and that is salvation in the name of Jesus Christ. We're to commit it to faithful people. Those faithful people then are to entrust it to others. I am to endure difficulties as a soldier endures difficulties. And so his first illustration is that of a soldier. So in verse 4, he says, No one engages in warfare, no soldier, the first thing he says, he doesn't entangle himself with the affairs of this life. So when you're inscripted into the military service, or when you're drafted, everything about your civilian life instantly changes. You're told when to get up. You're told how far you're going to march that day. You're told when you're going to go to bed. You're issued equipment. You don't check your phone. You don't check your emails. You don't wonder how your investments are doing. You're not worried about your grass in your front yard if somebody's mowing it. <laughs> you have changed allegiances. You've changed alliances. And so as good soldiers, we don't get wrapped up in the affairs of this world. 
The word to be entangled, the literal Greek word is implicate. That means get involved in to the point where it points you out. I shouldn't be known by the things of this world. This guy does such and such. I should be known by what I'm involved in for Christ. Every one of us are called into full-time Christian service. I remember that phrase when I was growing up. You've been called into full-time Christian service? I thought there was only four or five people in the church that were full-time Christians. The rest of us were all part-time. But we are all soldiers this morning. And we don't get wrapped up in the affairs, entanglement of this life. And the word for matters is pragmatos. We're not to be pragmatic. Well, if I just do this, then I'm going to have a better return on my, my goods. No, I'm thinking eternally. I'm laying up storing, storing up treasures in heaven as a good soldier. A soldier in active service doesn't get involved. The reason that he can be single-minded is because he wants to please the one who enlisted him. Who is the one who's now got you in this service? That's who we are now to serve. Who is it that's enlisted you and I into the army of God? It's Jesus Christ. I don't want to be wrapped up. I don't want to be consumed with the things of this world because we need to be single-minded, don't we? I want to please the one who's recruited me. This is the guy, this is the one that I owe my allegiance to. So that's the first illustration. The next illustration is that of an athlete. Verse 5, and also if anyone competes in athletics. The Greek word is athle, and the word is used for someone who is a professional athlete. It's the present tense. This is what he does all the time. This is how he makes his living. Someone who is an athlete. They're not distracted again by other things. Athletes who make their living from it are disciplined. They avoid other things that are going to detract, detract from that discipline of whatever their athletic event is. Paul uses the same illustration in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, and he talks about those who line up on the starting line. And he says only one of them is going to win the prize, and that's the way we are to be as athletes. We should ask ourselves, what does it take for me to be a successful believer? What does it take for me to be a successful Christian? The athlete who competes, he doesn't receive the crown unless he competes according to the rules. This is our rule book, isn't it? This book is what you and I need to be versed in. It needs to be saturated into our hearts. Because if I am going to be effective for Christ, I can't cut corners spiritually. I can't go out and evangelize without prayer. 
I can't go out and evangelize unless I have the sword of the Spirit equipped in my hand, in my heart. I can't go out and evangelize knowing that there's known sin in my life. I want to be effective. And the athlete who says, you know what, I, I can eat whatever I want. I can train when I feel like it. He goes into that event and he is going to get whooped. And that's what Paul is saying. We've got an enemy who is shrewd, and he is going to fiery, shoot fiery darts at us. And so he says, I'm going to compete according to the rules, because when I do that, I am not going to give a gospel that is untrue. I'm not going to add anything to the gospel. I need to know what it says. I'm not going to detract anything from the gospel. I'm not going to water it down. It's Jesus Christ. He is God. We are sinful people, and we all need a Savior, and we need to place our faith in Him. That's the rules that the athlete has got to compete under, and we'll not, we won't win the prize without sharing the gospel in that manner. The third illustration that he gives is that of a farmer. The hard working farmer. The word hard working is actually a participle phrase that's ascribing a characteristic, an attribute about the farmer. The word hard working means to labor to the point of exhaustion. So we've got a soldier who's involved in full-time active service. He has no responsibilities to this world. This world is not his home. The barracks is his home. And he's got one thing on his agenda, and that's to please the one who's recruited him. The athlete who lines up on the starting line, he is self-disciplined. He knows the rule book well. And, the, and by the way, the idea of that competing by the rules means that you and I will be disgraced if we don't. If we are found to be cheaters, we will be exposed and we will be a laughingstock. I'll never forget, I don't remember a lot of people who've, who've won medals, but I remember one guy. He was a Canadian. And... If you looked at pictures of this 100-meter sprinter before this Olympic event and after the Olympic event, they were like night and day. His name was Ben Johnson, and his arch nemesis was Carl Lewis. Carl Lewis was this lean string bean of a sprinter. I mean, nothing to him. And he lined up against this Ben Johnson who looked like a fire plug, literally. And Ben Johnson blew him away and set a world record. With the embarrassment when he was tested for anabolic steroids, the medal was stripped and it was given to his opponent. Unless we compete that way, we won't win the crown either. And the farmer, the farmer gets up in the morning, he plows the ground, he plants the seeds, 
He irrigates the seed. He watches it grow, and then he weeds it. And then he's out there day and night to bring in the harvest. Timothy, this is not a time to retreat. I'm about ready to die. I'm already being poured out. They're already loosing the ropes of the mooring, and I am departing this world. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. Timothy, people are departing. They are defecting left and right. Nobody wants to stand up with me. Timothy, don't be ashamed. Remember the faith that was in you. Remember the faith of your ancestors. Remember my faith. Don't be ashamed. I'm not ashamed, Paul says to Timothy. I know whom I believe. Look at Onesiphorus. Don't follow the world's example. Follow his example. He sought me out. He wasn't afraid to associate with a criminal who was sentenced to death. He sought me out. He said, yes, I am a follower of Jesus in a political situation that hated Christians. And he knew when he sought out Paul that he was probably going to be arrested himself. And so you and I in America, it is not a time to retreat. It's not a time to be quiet. It's not a time to put our light under a bushel. It's a time to stand up. It's a, it's a time to be a soldier. It's a time to be an athlete. And it's time to be a hard-working farmer. The farmer, according to the Old Testament law, was the first one to partake of that fruit. And when you and I get involved in service for Christ. You know who the first one who is blessed by it? It is you and I. The minute you and I start to engage in a spiritual conversation, you know who gets the first blessing? It's you. God begins to fill you with the Holy Spirit. When you are going to teach a Bible lesson to somebody else, you know who gets the first blessing? It is you. Because you do the research, you do the teaching. The Holy Spirit begins to minister to you. You know who the first blessing is when you serve somebody else? It is you. Because you understand that I am doing this as unto the Lord. And the Lord sees what I'm doing. And I know the Lord is going to reward me. And so Paul says it's the hard-working farmer who gets to be the first one to partake of that blessing. Your life is enriched. Your own faith grows. Your hope is made alive. Your love for others begins to grow. And your spiritual gifts are honed and sharpened. We've got one last command, and it's a present imperative to draw out the deep parallels between Paul's illustrations. And I just did that for us, so we're not going to have to do that again. But those three commands that God wants us to hear and to heed today. The first one, when you feel fearful, where does true strength reside? It resides in grace. Grace is a never-ending supply for you and I to do God's work.
That's where our strength lies. And the only supplier of that is Jesus himself. We are to take what we've got, this beautiful message, this sacred treasure, and we are to guard it. And we are to be committing it to others. And we are to get into the trenches and endure whatever this world is going to dish out to us as followers of Christ. The illustrations again. We don't want to get entangled. We compete according to the rules. And we are hardworking farmers. Let's close in prayer. Father, God, in our churches today across this country,